Welcome to the Woodshop Live podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. Hello. How's it going? Doing well. Hello, and- Hui. Hi, <laughs> guy. Oh. <laughs> I've not introduced you yet, guy. Hold on a second. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hello, Sean. Hey, Guy. Oh, hello, Hui. What's up, Guy? <laughs> This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. If you would like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash woodshop life if you would like to show your support. Stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our own shops. But with that, let's get right into it. Hui, what is your first question? All right. This question is from Matt, who happens to be a patron. Thank you, Matt. Uh, how much glue should you use on glue-ups? I typically put too much, I think, and have a lot of squeeze-out. I worry about a strong glue joint, though. What amount is strong enough? A light film of glue, a little puddle, or flooded? Thanks, Matt. I think it's always better to have too much glue than not enough. That being said, having a lot of sque- glue squeeze-out is just a mess to deal with. And I've seen this a lot on, on social media when folks are gluing up, particularly cutting boards. Now, I understand a lot of times those are getting resurfaced. But when it comes to, at least for me, panel glue-ups, I like to see like a nice even bead of squeeze-out, making sure that there's a squeeze-out along the length of that glue joint. That being said, I don't expect it to run out to the point of it getting all over the unexposed wood surfaces. Because one thing that is really, really difficult to deal with is glue that's uh, embedded into the wood grain and then it just doesn't absorb finish very well, or it at least shows that there was glue on that surface. And one thing I do like to do, and I don't know if this helps you, I actually like to wait until the glue uh, sort of rubberizes a little bit where it forms like a little uh, hard film or something over the glue beads. And then I just scrape it off with either a credit card or a putty knife, like a plastic putty knife. But that's what I do. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I guess that would qualify as a little puddle if you consider those nice beads to be um, to be a little puddle. But uh, definitely not a light film. I do like to see a little bit of squeeze out, but I don't flood it to the point where it's running all over the place. I just, I hate dealing with that much squeeze out. So, well, what about you, Sean? I mean, are you, are you a flutter? No, I, I, I'm not. Like if I'm doing a panel glue up, I'll put glue on one side of the board mm-hmm. uh, and make sure that it's not translucent, but it's a yellow, meaning that you can't see through the light film of glue that you put on there. Mm-hmm. So I'll make sure that it's a, it's covered very, very well. And mm-hmm. then sometimes I'll, I'll put a real light film on the other board, but mm-hmm. oftentimes I'm only putting it on one side, doing a rub joint and making sure that I get some squeeze out when I clamp it together. If I don't have that complete line, I would definitely undo that and put more glue on there. But I've never had that happen if I made sure that the glue is thick, really thick on one side so that it, I get that good squeeze out that I like to see. So you go with the... Uh, waiting for it to sort of set up and then pop it off with the putty knife. I like to go with wiping it off with a damp paper towel. And sometimes Mm -hmm. depending on if it's a corner, like if it's a mortise and tenon, uh, Mm -hmm. an apron connecting to a leg, I'll use a a toothbrush that's uh, been dipped in water to get that off of the piece. And then of Mm -hmm. course you can always pre-finish as much as possible so that it's not that big of a deal as well. But I make sure to put enough on, but I don't put so much on that. It's just a, a big mess. And if I do, I really don't mean to because sometimes I put way too much on, but I try not to. I put on, try to put on just enough to get a good squeeze out. 
Guy, do you use any of like those brushes or any of those silicone brushes? I've seen a lot of those and I, I, I've used them a couple of times. But, yes. Uh, and I, yeah. I, actually, I was thinking of that while you guys were talking about this is that the, the, the benefit to using those brushes, first of all, is the cleanup, obviously. Right. The second thing is, is it helps think of if you guys have ever done any tile work mm-hmm. and you're putting the, uh, the mastic down or whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah, or yeah. the tiles are laying. You know, you're supposed to use a certain size of notch trowel depending mm-hmm. on the, the the type of adhesive you're using. It's the same thing with those glue applicators. When right. you push it down, it helps put the right amount of glue on mm-hmm. the joint. Right. It's easy to do on a panel, mm-hmm. not so much on like a mortise and tenon or something like that. Yeah. Most of the time, if I'm doing piece of what I would call fine furniture, mm-hmm. I'm using hide glue. Right. And with hide glue, it doesn't affect the finish. And where the advantage to that is, you know, it's a problem not having enough glue on a joint. Right, right, it's right. It's not a problem having too much glue. The right. only thing having too much glue is, as you pointed out, we, it causes a big freaking mess. Mm-hmm. And if that glue squeeze out gets into something like end grain, ugh, it's a real pain in the butt to get yeah. rid of. Right, right. Uh, even on, you know, face grain or long grain, whatever the hell you want to call it, it's hard to get rid of and get a finish or stain over that. Mm-hmm. So if I know I'm in that situation where glue can get an end grain or <clears throat> on the long grain or Morrison tenon or whatever, I'm using high glue. Right. Because right. it doesn't affect finish and I, I just water will take it off even after it's dry. Mm-hmm. The water will water cold uh, water on a rag will just take it off. But uh, I'm also in the camp with Sean of getting rid of the glue as it's still wet. Gotcha. I've n- I never wait for it to gel up. Mm-hmm. To me, that's more of a mess. I've seen mm. it tear out grain if it goes too long and you pop it off like that. Oh yeah, really, really careful. Yeah. But that, yeah. but it's got to be hard. Uh, just wanted to add that I use. Um, I know we're talking about brushes, but I'm in the camp of um, Chris Swords of using the acid brushes and trimming them to about five eighths of an inch long, mm-hmm. the bristles. And yeah, uh, you can, if you're gluing up a panel, that's hard to use that little acid brush. Well, are you talking about edge joint, edge yeah. edge glue? Yeah. I mean, it's not that difficult. Oh, if you got like you know, six foot top and you got four boards, you got this little tiny brush. And I find that those <laughs> silicone brushes, just most of the glue goes up in the brush and I, I can't stand them. So I always use a an acid brush, but I trim it to about five eighths of an inch. So it's not yeah. a big floppy brush. And I, I find that works well. And plus you can clean those out by dipping them in water um, and reuse them, or you can just pop out another one. But that's what yeah. I use. I use those acid, br- acid brushes quite a bit too. Yeah, I do as well. But I but I have a uh, several different sizes of those silicone brushes. Some of them are round, some of them are square, some of them are um, rectangular. So I have a couple of different sizes. But uh, I, I use I do use the acid brush particularly on mortise and tenon joints. But for a lot of the edge glue ups, I do use the bigger silicone brush. I like it, but I I see where you're coming from though, uh, Sean. About it kind of it does absorb quite a bit. Uh, like a lot of glue does kind of go up in there. Uh, yeah. by the nature of what it is but but I do I do have to agree with with guy I do like the fact that 
you know, you kind of get that uh, troweled look when using the brush, which I, I tend to like and kind of evenly distribute the glue. So you kind of get those nice puddles in there and it seeps between those those uh, those peaks and valleys. So, yeah. all right. Well, Guy, I think you've got the next question, man. All right. This is from Mike. It says, hi, guys. Love the podcast. By far the best that is out there. And Mike found the way to make sure that his question gets answered with <laughs> a starting sentence like that. Okay. He says, I'm making a tabletop that is seven feet long, and I needed to joint the edge of the boards. Mm-hmm. Pretty standard. I have a six-inch joiner, and the total bed length is 46 inches long. After joining the edge of the boards and placing them next to each other, I noticed that some of the jointed edges were concave over the seven feet, and the concave was much too large for a sprung joint. spring joint. To solve for this problem, I put the boards together face-to-face and then used my number six to flatten the sides. Although this worked, I would have preferred that the joints were not concave off the joiner. Do you think the concave, concave boards was caused by my technique or is my joiner just too small? If it's a joiner, what size joiner would have eliminated this problem? I know an aircraft carrier would take care of the problem. Given I am a hobbyist uh, and have a budget, what would you recommend, Mike? There's a couple reasons I took this question. First of all, was the saying that we are by far the best podcast out here. Oh, the my. second the oh. second one <laughs> is that I deal with this on a daily basis. I actually posted a picture on Instagram tonight of me using our joiner at work. This is a 16-inch aircraft carrier. I think the beds have a total length of the over seven feet. Yeah, looks like it. It's probably that's probably close to eight. We constantly, I mean, all the time. We just built in the last three days, I think, five or six tabletops that were over 10 feet long. We had some 10-footers. We had some 12-footers. When you're joining 12-foot-long boards wow, and you've got mm-hmm. a concave, even with an aircraft carrier joiner like that, the beds still are not long enough. There is nothing you can if you if that board is concave, and the the what, what I don't know what the correct term for it would be the top of that curve. We what would that be? Would that be the apogee? The peak? The apogee? Sure. The peak. Yeah. The apogee. The peak mm-hmm. of the or the crown. Yeah. Of there that you go. Uh, curve. Yeah. If it's bad enough, it's when you push it over the joiner, it's not gonna come out flat mm-hmm. if you've got a, a, a set let's say in my home shop um i've got a like both we and sean have i've got a combination machine the beds on that are really short right so if i'm using you know i, I and in my shop my home shop i rarely make anything over six inches long but if i am making something over or six inches long six feet long i was gonna say wow yeah, I <laughs> really tables. make any, Yeah, I, I make a lot of doll furniture. So, <laughs> so let's say I've got an eight foot board and I've got this little, you know, my, my beds I, I think are only like forty five. Is that like forty five inches, Sean? That sounds uh, about so. right. Somewhere around yeah. there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like forty five inches. I break out my track saw. Yes. Yep. And I cut. I make sure that I'm starting with a straight line. 
So if you notice a concave in there and you don't have to have a track saw, this is a good way to just break out a, a, a nice straight piece of MDF or plywood mm-hmm. and a circular saw and cut yourself a straight line. Get rid of that. I guess what I'm saying is get rid of the con, get rid of that curve mm-hmm. in the board. Yeah. And start with something straight and then it'll work fine. Right. Yeah. So, and like I said, we deal with this every day. And, you know, when you're dealing with a 12 foot board, we don't have 12 foot long sections of track. So I keep telling the guys, worry about it closing at the ends and we'll take as much as a 32nd of an inch gap in the middle. Cause sometimes it's just impossible to get it out. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, we do the sprung joint thing. How do you guys deal with that in your shops? I dealt with this because I was joining the edges for the tabletop that I recently finished back in the fall. And in order to alleviate it, I, I did what I did what Mike did, which was uh, used a, a a hand plane that was uh, that had the boards sandwiched together. But no, guy, I think I think if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have started with the track saw. You know, I would have flattened the board and then planed it. And then gone to to the track saw and then edge jointed it. And I think that would have alleviated the problem. Yeah. And then I wouldn't have had to go to my hand plane. Of course, I didn't think about that at the time. But, you know, I also learn a lot of things here, too, when I'm doing the podcast. Yeah. Sometimes I just draw a straight line with a, with a straight edge and just cut it at the bandsaw. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you can do that, too. Good point. Good point. Sean, have you... uh? Have you been dealing with that lately? You haven't been making two uh, pieces too big, have you? Lately, nothing too too long. Um, so you guys have covered the track saw. Let me throw this out there as since he's talking about what did he say seven feet? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about using and making a straight line jig for the table saw to clamp it in place mm-hmm. and having mm-hmm. like a, a nice piece of MDF or something as the base and put some toggle clamps on there mm-hmm. and using that as like a straight line rip. Uh, to get nice jointed, at least good enough that you can take to the hand plane to get you closer than short beds on a joiner. Yep. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. If you don't have a track saw, you could give that a try Mm -hmm. with uh, some known good MDF. Just rip Mm -hmm. a piece and use Mm -hmm. some toggle clamps and use that. Yeah. But anything you can do to, to start out with not having that concave edge, the better off you'll be. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Well, I think I have the next one. And this is from Rick. Rick says, I've been practicing with shellac on shop furniture. I've been using the pre-mixed stuff off of the shelf and I'm not getting a smooth finish. I have used both a cloth and a foam brush. I'm thinking that the wrong, that it's the wrong viscosity and I would be better off in mixing my own. Can you talk about how you mix shellac? Rick. Well, this is a good question and something that I struggled with um, when I was starting to use shellac as a finish. Uh, but first, I want to talk about the stuff right out of the can. And I did look at the technical data bulletin from Rustoleum, and the shellac that comes pre-mixed in the can is typically a three-pound cut, which is pretty thick. Uh, I'm not 100% if their seal coat is a three-pound cut, but they did show that the amber and the clear shellacs as being a three-pound cut. Do you guys know if the seal coat is a three-pound cut? As far as I was told, it was a three-pound cut. Okay. Or a two-pound a- cut. Three-pound cut. No, three-pound cut. Yeah, there are other stuff they did say in their bulletin that it was a three-pound cut, so I'm going to guess that it's a three-pound as well. But either way, uh, I would I would highly recommend that you thin it with 50-50 with denatured alcohol to get you started. And that's going to give you a thinner coat 
and it's going to lay down a whole lot easier. And the premix shellac isn't a bad product, and I love using their de-wax seal coat all the time, but I always thin it 50-50. The thinner Mm -hmm. the shellac, the easier it is, in my opinion, to get a smoother, Mm -hmm. uh, streak-free finish. And another tip that I would give on shellac, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, is that you do mix your own flakes. I like to mix a two-pound cut instead of something like a one-pound so that you have the option to go to a thicker coat if you want to do your first mm-hmm. one or two coats as a thicker coat, go with a two pound or something like that. And then you can always thin it down from there to get the thinner subsequent coats. Yes. It just gives you the flexibility instead of starting out with a one pound mix. Uh, and finally, onto your application methods, you talk about using a foam brush. And I, I dislike using foam brushes with shellac. The foam starts to dissolve and it gets really, really flimsy. And I find that extremely hard to use. I always recommend using something like a natural natural bristle brush. And I use an oxhair brush from Purdy. It's worth the money and it'll last you a lifetime. And the second option is to apply the shellac using a lint-free cloth made into either a square pad or a ball. Uh, but it needs to be wrinkle, wrinkle-free so that it's a nice smooth finish. But ultimately, I'll find apply the thinner coats, let the shellac dry long enough before applying your next coat and uh, use a, a quality brush or a lint-free cloth and just uh, give that time to dry before you apply your next coat. Uh, let's see, Guy, what do you think about his issues that he's having with this shellac? I, th- I think it's exactly what you mentioned. The stuff out of a can is good, but it does need to be thinned. Using a cloth is fine. Again, don't use a, a foam brush. Um, I don't. I, unlike you, Sean, I do not like using a brush at all. And that really has to do with me the first time i used shellac you know maybe 20 years ago i was using the regular you know waxed shellac that zinzer sells the amber shellac Mm -hmm. and it just turned into a big goopy mess and i was brushing it on it was horrible so then i started really getting into a little bit more and i saw some i read some at that time you know read some articles on french polishing and i kind of adapted a way to do it which is just using a balled up piece of cloth and rubbing it on with that. And that's the way I've been doing it for a very long time. And that's the way I like to do it. I use a one and a half pound cut. Now I I, I am going to give myself a, a little plug here for my YouTube on my YouTube channel, Rick, I've got a video on mixing your own shellac and making your own shellac. I've also got a video on there on how I apply shellac. There are mm-hmm. short videos and of course, there's they're always a lot of fun because I'm in them. <laughs> there's I think there's some good information there, and I would say check that out. I know you use a lot of shellacqui. What do you do? So I actually have tried the foam brush method, and it failed horribly uh, because the foam just disintegrates. And um, after <laughs> so uh, so a plug for guy. When I found out that the foam brush didn't work, I actually watched your videos, and uh, I'm in the camp of using the dauber, the uh, the wadded up t-shirt. Yeah, I call know, like, I call it a rubber. I know, I know. Uh, just because I want, <laughs> just because I wanted to get like certain responses from the people watching it. It's a rubber. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're, but we're uh, also but, adult about stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, rubber, a dauber, whatever you want to call it, and uh, and I do the same method that in terms of mixing it, it's a relatively easy method. And, um, you know, you just, you weigh it out, you put it in a jar, glass jar, 
you swirl it around, let it sit, come back every 10, 15 minutes, swirl it around. And, you know, within an hour, hour and a half, it's all dissolved. And that's that's the way I do it. I myself do not like using a brush just because what I've kind of realized with a brush is that I'll get it to pool up initially and then it'll kind of thin out and it'll look better. Uh, whereas with a dauber, I feel like I have a little bit more control as to how much is actually in inside the uh, inside the, the the wadded rags. So if that makes sense, I've found applying shellac and not necessarily making shellac because it's pretty straightforward and it's there's yeah. really only one way to do it. But as far as applying it, I, I see it a lot like sharpening. Certain people pick a certain method. Yeah. Yep. And they're successful with it and they don't want to change it. And it's it's the same thing, like I said, with shellac as, as it was sharpening. If you find a system that works for you, whether it's brushing, using a, a, a dauber or, or as I would say, a rubber, and however you do it, if it works for you, stick with it. Don't change it. Just keep doing it that way. And the video I have on my YouTube shows exactly how I, you know, painstakingly step by step how I do it. <laughs> but, you know, it's just how I do it. And it's not necessarily the right way or the wrong way. It's just my way. Yeah. The reason so, why I find using a brush extremely handy is, you know, I oftentimes will use a brush and a pad at the same time because if I'm brushing, let's say, a table base that has, you know, corners and stuff that are hard to get into, I find it difficult to get a wad of lint-free cloth all the way in the corner. So I will start with the brush in the corner, bring it out, and then finish with the pad. And another thing that I like doing with the brush on larger tabletop surfaces, if I if I just charge the brush, I won't start all the way at the end. I'll start in the middle and work my way out so that that excess buildup will have time to spread instead of dripping off the edge. But like you're saying, once you learn how to use a certain method of applying the shellac, the application method, you know how to use it. It works. Don't change it. There's no need to change what, what works. Yeah. I find big tabletop surfaces to a brush seems faster to me than a, I don't know, lint cloth, lint free cloth. Yeah. On large surfaces, I like to spray. Yeah. Even if it's, even if it's, if you don't have a sprayer, that's fine. Use a rattle can. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. You can get the uh, rattle can stuff. Yeah. I use rattle cans all the time. That's wrong. When I'm, when I'm making boxes and stuff. Absolutely. You know, if I've got, I just get a rattle can and spray it and I'm done. Yep. Yeah. The only negative with using a brush, obviously over uh, a cloth is you got to clean it. You know, you got to keep it clean. You got to uh, comb the brush, as they say with, uh, you got to take care of the brush and it'll last you a lifetime. Well, I hope that helps Rick check out his video, thin your shellac and figure out a method that's going to work for you and and stop using the foam brush. I think you'll have success. <laughs> so with that, uh, we back to you. All right. This question is from Dave with matter of fractions. I like that name. That's, that's clever. I have a three horsepower 15. Dave is clever. Matter of fractions. Uh, yeah, that, that's clever. Uh, I have a three horsepower 15 inch planer. The question is, when should I be concerned about changing the gearbox oil and other deep maintenance besides waxing and blade changes? I just purchased a Grizzly knockoff that was manufactured in 2003 and never plugged in. I've ran about 100 board feet through it so far. Besides some rust, it runs perfectly. I think it needs new belts, but wondering if I should go deeper with the maintenance. So I actually changed, I had a 15 inch Grizzly planer, probably very similar to the 
planer that you have now. And I actually had to change the gearbox oil, not because I decided to do the scheduled maintenance for it, but because one of the gears had broken uh, and I had, I think I had it for like about three years and somehow the gear in the gearbox had broken and I had to put that thing back on. I would go and maybe check the gearbox oil because, you know, it's been kind of in there for a while and, you know, the oil might've just seized up or coagulated or something over time. But the best thing to do is just to take the plug on top off and get a pipe cleaner, stick it in there. And if you're not seeing any like dirty oil or anything like that, I don't think you need to change it. A hundred board feet is not that much to go through a 15 inch planer like that. Again, I had to change the oil in mine because I had to actually fix a problem. And it is not a very fun thing to do. It's kind of messy. If you do decide to change the gearbox oil, get a fluid pump. You can get these pumps that, uh, attached to either quart bottle or the squeeze bottles. I think the squeeze bottles actually have the same spout size as a quart size bottle. And that's going to be a lot easier to put into the gearbox because the gearbox has like just a little small hole. I think it's like a five sixteen inch hole or something to actually put the oil back in. If you don't, it's going to be a mess and that oil is going to get everywhere if you don't have one of those. So you know, if you do decide to do that, just a tip, get a fluid pump for gearbox oil. It'll help you. I think they're like five or six bucks on Amazon. But man, if if it's running fine, you know, I might I might check just to make sure with with a pipe cleaner, and that's it. Guy, have you changed any gearbox oil in any any planers? I know that you uh, you work at uh, at a bigger shop now that has some bigger machines. I'm sort of curious whether or not any of those machines ever need any of that type of maintenance or require it. Well, yeah, we're putting a hundred board feet through our planer before eight a.m. Yeah, through both of them. We have a guy that does the maintenance for us. Okay. He comes in almost every day and he's got a maintenance schedule. I have not personally seen him change any gearbox oil since I've been there. I think the gearbox oil lasts quite a while. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what the the number is and when you need to change it, but um Grizzly recommends on my machine, they recommended twenty-four hours. Of runtime. If we changed our gearbox oil every 24 hours of runtime, we would be changing it once a week. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. They they recommend to change the gearbox oil after the first 24 hours, and then they say to do it once every year. And I think the reason why they say Grizzly mentions 24 hours, the first 24 hours, is if there's any like loose debris or anything like that, it's just just to flush From that out. Manufacturing. Correct. Yeah. 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 I, I misspoke. I'm, my apologies. I've never owned a planer like this. I've mm-hmm. used them, but I've never owned a planer like this. I mean, I went from a DeWalt lunchbox to the DeWalt four post and then to the combo machine. So I've never had like a 15 inch or a 20 inch planer. I've used them many times, but I've never owned one. So I never had to do much maintenance. What, what about you, Sean? You've had your your jet for a while. What what kind of maintenance have you done to that? Well, I replaced the head. I did have straight knives and yeah. put in the helical head. Um, Didn't you have a problem with like the the feed rollers or something like that on the planer side? I, I just got to keep it waxed like all the time. Otherwise, it'll just sit there and not pull the board through at least once a week. And I don't use it that often. Otherwise, the it just won't pull the board through and it'll just sit there and will spin on wow. the board. Huh. Uh, 
not looked into it, but uh, I just keep it waxed. Um, swapped out the head. I did have did replace a belt that broke. But other than that, that's it. Does it have any gear oil? No. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was going to say there's nothing nothing like that to uh, to replace, and I don't have any experience with that. Yeah, on, on our machines, there's no there's no speed change. It's one speed, so there's no gearbox. Does your hammer have two speeds? It does, but uh, you know I'll have to read the manual of whether or not it requires the gearbox oil to be yeah, changed. It's got two speeds. It's got a gearbox. <laughs> Think about it's it. Just I guess. Not, it's just not reducing the speed by elfin magic. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's got to be a way to do it. But, you know, I think the, the answer to your question, Dave, is if I had a machine that I bought that was from 2003, you know, that's 17 years old, 16, 17 years old, was never turned on, I'd probably replace the gearbox oil mm. just because it's been sitting so long and it may have lost its viscosity. Mm, yeah. It be as effective as it should be. Other than that, I mean, your belts might need to be replaced because they might have developed a flat spot on them. But if it seems to be running fine, I wouldn't worry about the belts. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious when you have a bad belt. You can hear so, it. Yeah, and all the other maintenance stuff is just like a maintenance on any other machine. You know, keep it clean, keep it rust-free, keep your beds waxed so the, the your materials slide across it easy. Yeah. You know, all the standard stuff. Yeah. I really can't add any more to that. It wouldn't hurt anything and change it. If you're questioning it, just change it. Well, all right. I think uh guy, you've got the next one. This is from Oscar. It's he says, Hi guys. I would like to hear your thoughts on sliding table saws versus traditional cabinet saws. And if any of you have experience with one, again, I've taken this, I've taken this question because yes, I do have experience with our, our slider at work. Most online posts all in the U.S. consider these saws as industrial and or for production shops working with sheet goods only and not for making furniture. I've been comparing the PM2000B and the Hammer K3 winner. I'm aware there's a huge price difference between the saws. 3400 versus 5800 at present time, and that a slider needs more floor space to accommodate the outrigger. Neither of them is a saw stop, so I'll probably die shortly after cutting my first board. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's got hashtag YOLO. What does that mean? I don't even know. I have Sean? no idea. Sean, you know what that means? Uh, no. Okay. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. That's you only live once. I'm not sure why you hashtagged it, but. So in in short, he's asking if you had the money and space, would this be a saw you would consider Oscar? Yes, I would consider it if I had the space. There's two things though. These sliding saws, they all have throws on them. In other words, how far the slider goes. Some have six feet, some have eight feet, some have 10 feet. The one we have at work is a big grizzly 10 foot throw. So that means I can take, when, and we've got some in the shop right now, five by 10 sheets of plywood and put it on there and chop them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's extremely handy. What's not handy on it is cutting, let's say I've got a piece of wood and I want to cut it down to three inches. 
very hard to use. Mm -hmm. That's when I go over to the regular table saw and use it. Right. If you see a lot of shops that have these things, you know, the, as you put it, the um, production shops or, or whatever, they not only have one of these big panel saws, but they've also got a regular old American style table saw. Yeah. And the reason for that is it's awkward to cut the boards because you've got the slider to the left of the blade and that slider prohibits you from standing to the left of the blade. So you're actually standing to the right of the blade and you're the, you've got the fence almost like right in front of you and you're trying to push the, the wood through. It's, it's an awkward stance. Or you can stand on the other side of the slider and kind mm -hmm. of reach over and do it that way. Mm. The I use the slider at work all the time. I, I don't think I've ever used the fence on it. All I'm using is the is the slider part. Mm -hmm. Anytime I need something with a fence, I'm going over to my, we have two saw stops there. Yeah. I don't know if that helps you or not. Let me ask you a question then, Guy. So one thing that I did not include on this is he said about me, I'm a hobby woodworker and have no plans to make a living from my crafts. I have made cabinets for my shop and house along with a dresser. Future projects include tables, both big and small, more cabinets, more dressers, and maybe some small boxes. I will never make a cutting board ever. So his question <laughs> is, if you had the money and space, would this saw, would this be a saw that you would consider knowing what you know about how he's going or what he's, what he plans on making? No. Yeah. I would get a, I would get the Powermatic PM 2000B for obvious reasons, because mm -hmm. it's a great saw. And I would get for lar large cross cuts, track saws and crosscut sleds and all kinds of different stuff you can do to make those crosscuts. That is not that common of a thing, making a four foot crosscut. Yeah. You know, unless you're breaking down plywood and if mm -hmm. you're break, breaking down plywood, I'd buy a PM 2000 B and a good track saw and you'll find tons of other uses for your track saw when you have it. And the, the PM 2000 is a fantastic beast of a machine and will last you the rest of your life. Sean, um, have you ever used one of these machines? I have not used one, but in my setting, even if I had the space, I wouldn't get one. I mean, it just, it doesn't fit my style and what I make. If I made cabinets and broke down plywood often, maybe I'd look into it, but not for furniture that I make and stuff. I, I just think it would take up too much room, even though I had the room for it. I, I probably just wouldn't. I'd stay with my my saw stop so that I wouldn't die shortly after cutting my first board. <laughs> I know like um, like Ramon Valdez, Ramon Artful on Instagram, he's got a Hammer K3 winner and he yeah. loves it. But most of the people I, I, I know that, you know, that I see on YouTube, or whatever, that have one of these big saws, they've also got a regular table saw. Yeah. Yeah. Like a Delta Unisaw or PM2000 or something like that. They've got some kind of saw in there other than this saw. I guess I would have to ask Ramon, maybe we should have brought Ramon in on this, uh, of what he thinks of his, I, I, he really likes his hammer. He's made a couple posts about it, that yep. he really likes the K3 winner. I know that he has he has a table saw on the other side of it. I know he does. Uh, I'm so sorry, not table traditional too. table saw. Yeah, yep. Okay. I think it's a unisaw. If I'm not mistaken, but I might be. Uh, I I can't remember to be honest. 
But there, I, even on, even on solid wood, the the slider is nice when you're doing a lot of tabletops and stuff. Oh sure, yeah. Man, it's nice to be able to take a a, a, a tabletop that's been glued up and just three cuts later, boom, you've got a perfectly square tabletop. And I mean, in minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. Yep. Now that being said, I, I believe he, maybe he does. I don't, I've never seen him bust out a track saw. So I think he uses the K3 winner the way most of us would be using a track saw in the sense of processing a lot of large goods. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, you know what? We should probably ask him. <laughs> we don't know for sure, but I'm pretty so, sure. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm but you guys both have saw stops. Have you ever considered getting the sliding attachment for it for doing, you know, cross cuts and breaking down sheet? I mean, I've only heard heard bad things about it. Um, their yeah. their slider attachments. So probably not. I mean, in my shop setting, I don't think I have the room for it. Um, but if I had the room, the only, the only negative thing I've ever I've ever heard about that is that it doesn't have a. At one time, it may have changed. It did not have a positive stop for ninety degrees on the fence. It does now. In fact, actually, has detents at all the major stops, um, twenty two okay. and a half. But, but originally, it didn't. It did not. Correct. The yeah. uh, but that but that's only part of the problem that I've heard with it. The other problem that I heard I've heard with it is if you know if you want to make a rip, let's say you've got an eight inch wide board, and your crosscut slider is calibrated so that it's maybe I don't know a half an inch away from the blade or something like that, right? Well, it'll only go back so far, and if you've got an eight inch wide board that's you know six feet long, seven feet long that you need to rip on the table saw, well, you got to get you got to take that crosscut sled off. Well, the way the crosscut sled is 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 attached to, or the slider is attached, you have to take it off. Not a big deal, but then when you put it back on, you have to recalibrate it because there is some play in there. And the yeah. way they have it, you you put it back on. There's an adjustment that you have to make in order to bring it back to ninety. Every single time you take it off, if you got to go from crosscut to rip or rip to crosscut, you got to recalibrate it, and that's a pain in the butt. Yeah. So, I've thought about it, but but because of that, I'm like, eh. No, that's all right. <laughs> I'll use a miter gauge for my crosscut sled. But for for the type of work we do in a production shop, yes, it's a must. Mm-hmm. I mean, an absolute must. Right. But for a hobbyist shop, I would say no. Yeah, get the PM two thousand. Get a uh, the the Ankara five thousand sled. Man, that thing rocks. It'll yep. do a 24 inch cross cut mm-hmm. on that PM 2000. Mm-hmm. That's nice and I, accurate as heck. I bet you if you got that along with the track saw, it'd be cheaper than the uh, the Hammer K3. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, the Hammer K3 is a, it looks like a great machine. I can't speak for it. I've never used it, but it looks great. It looks wonderful. But I, I, I don't think I would consider it. Unless I had the space and and I had yeah. money to blow, and I'm like, you know what? Let's get the K3, and I'll keep the saw that I have. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a valid statement too. If I had unlimited budget and room, absolutely throw one in there. But I'll keep. the But saw I think that I also, have. if you were doing that, you'd probably be doing production work or a lot of that where you could justify it. Yeah, you but know? also, the K3 winner I think is only a six foot throw. Mm. So even if you had like a standard sheet of plywood, you couldn't rip. Couldn't rip it, yeah. No, you'd have to cross cut it down first and then rip it. I, I may be mistaken on that. I don't know that for a fact. 
but I think it's just a six foot throw on it. Yeah. What is it? What is it that you say you've been I've wrong been once before? One time. I remember the tape very well. <laughs> I made a mistake. I like to use, I, I like using that statement now every yeah. time since yeah, I heard you say that. That's it pretty good. a long one. time because, you know, I, that was a long time ago I made that mistake. <laughs> That's a lot of single instances, though. They do add up, guy. <laughs> All right. Who's got the next question? I do. And uh, this this is the last question. Yeah. And this is from uh, Antoine. Hey, guys, I have a question regarding dust collection. Ever since I started getting serious about it, it feels like a never-ending spiral for the quest of a dust-free shop. Is such a thing possible? Where's the line that you mark as good enough? Do you have a daily cleanup routine that helps you with this? My shop is an attached two-car garage, and my wife would love for me to stop dragging sawdust into the house. Thanks, guys. Love the show, and keep up the great content. Huh. This is a good question, and I struggle with it quite often. And in my opinion, is a dust-free shop a possibility? I think you can get really close, but not completely Mm -hmm. dust-free. I would start by first examining your tools that produce dust. You have things like your joiner and planer that have pretty good dust collection on them if you have a dust collector that's uh, got enough CFM to collect it. Uh, the table saw can be okay with uh, if you have a, a, an over overblade uh, dust collection solution and something good in the cabinet. Uh, you, you can do decent at a table saw. Uh, and again, it also depends on if you're taking a, a cut with the blade fully and closed on both sides or just one side that you know, depending on the type of cut. Uh, but then you have the tools that are pretty difficult to collect most of the dust, like your miter saws and your band saws. The best you can do for a miter saw, in my opinion, is to enclose it from behind and let that area collect the dust, kind of like what Jay Bates has with his miter station. Uh, it's going to contain the dust behind the saw and it's going to fall and you normally have a dust uh, collection port on the bottom that's going to collect that dust. Uh, with the bandsaw, you're pretty much left with what the saw came with as far as dust collection is concerned. Depending on your saw, obviously, you could have one or two ports. And those are not, at least from what I've seen, they're not the best at collecting the dust right at the source of where it's cutting. You're still going to get the fine dust that's in the air. So just do the best you can with your with your bandsaw. Have the dust collection be the right size for your shop. And then get an air cleaner for the fine dust that stays in the air. And... After that, you just got to get a routine going of cleaning your shop up. You know, I get flack on social media for having such a spotless shop. And that's because I make it a point to clean up at the end of the day. Uh, You know, I'll sweep up. I will take the shop back to every tool, clean up all the dust so that, you know, it doesn't create this big, nasty shop that you're constantly walking in that dust to bring into the house. Uh, Stop 10 minutes early, dust, sweep, and uh, just do that every time and you know, that's probably about the best that you can do that 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 I'm aware of um, as far as keeping your tools, uh, collecting the dust at the tools and getting the finer dust out of the air and sweep your floors. Um, but that's just my opinion. Uh, Hui, how do you keep your shop so clean? Because it looks like I'm a really good leaf blower. Uh- <laughs> well, there. Yeah, that, that no, that's I, right. That's I, a well, good point. In all seriousness, I do have a backpack leaf blower that I go through once a week just to get all the surface dust because Man, it's the fine dust that drives me nuts. I'll tell you what, the big dust from the jointer, planer, not an issue at all for my dust collector. Not an issue at all. It's really the fine dust that that is a big problem for me. And I will say the miter saw is is terrible. Like I don't have a shroud in the back just because I don't want uh, something permanently emplaced 
um, behind the miter saw to really, you know, collect all that dust. And, you know, I don't want something big and bulky like that, but miter saw is a huge culprit. Uh, the table saw as well. I kind of wish the dust collection on the saw stop was a little bit better, but it's not. I'd say it's pro- it probably gets about 80% of the sawdust that comes from the saw. But, uh, but again, it's the fine dust that, you know, that comes up top that just drives me nuts. But, but to be honest, you know, once a week, man, I go through my shop with, uh, with a leaf blower and I just open up the doors and blow everything out and then it's fine. That's it. So, and keep everything in drawers. I use a lot of drawers. So yep. everything in drawers really helps a lot that way. You know, the surfaces are much easier to clean. There isn't stuff on shelves and whatnot and you get a lot of accumulation when you've got shelves of, of da- dust. So guy, you keep a really clean shop too. I mean, I think we all keep pretty clean shops. Which- yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, everything you guys mentioned is, is, is pretty darn accurate. I, I have a Capex for the miter saw and that does a really good job of the dust collection. It gets probably about 90% of the mm-hmm. dust. Um, I've actually used Jay Bates miter saw station. He's got, he had a big, yet big ass dust collector hooked up to that thing, man. You could, if there was a frog sitting six feet in front of that thing, it would get sucked up into that dust collector. He gets absolutely zero (laughs) dust on his miter saw because of that. And it's Sean's right. It's a big box behind it. And, uh, it does a good job. Uh, if I just don't have room for anything like that. So I, I just have a small thing, but I, but again, I, I'm also spoiled and I have the, the festival Capex, which does great work at dust collection. Uh, but it's also a very expensive toy. Uh, if you don't have that, there are some other solutions out there. I saw, uh, I've seen people, several people that use like those, big uh, plastic bins you buy at like the big box stores for like seven, eight dollars. Yeah, the Rubbermaid stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The big plastic bins, man. They put that behind there and mount it somehow and hook up the dust collector. I think that's a really good idea. Anyways, you can do that. The bandsaw puts out dust. Um, I've got very good dust collection on my bandsaw and my table saw, but they still... You know, you get, as you guys have mentioned, the fine dust in the air. That's when you have the the ambient air cleaners. I've got an attached garage also where I'm, I'm working in just like you guys and just like Antoine is. The biggest problem for me is not the dust in the air. That's in the shop. That mm-hmm. dust in the air does not enter my house. What does enter my house is the, the chips, typically from doing hand tool work, chiseling, drilling, hand planing. I'd say hand tools are the biggest culprit of crap getting in my house because it leaves big piles of crap on the floor. There is no dust collection for your number four hand plane. It just ends up somewhere. And for me, it always ends up on the floor. Yep. And I don't clean up until the end of the day but during the day i'm walking in there in the house to go to the bathroom or i need to check the computer for something i take my shoes off out in the garage i'm still bringing chips in and it's mostly chips from hand tool stuff or my dog goes out in the shop 
and starts <laughs> rooting around it. And she's got a face full of chips and she brings it in and there's chips all over the place. So if you want to get rid of a, if you want to have a dust free, completely dust free shop, you can, you can get all the tools in there that you want. You can get really good dust collection and then don't use any of them. <laughs> don't ever cut any piece of wood in your shop and you will never, you, it will be a dust free environment. <laughs> That in, indeed it would. So I hope you listen to that and not use your tools. Take our take guys' advice. I find what what creates the uh, largest amount of crap that I bring in the house is when I'm using a tool such as the table saw. It kicks back, lands on my shirt, goes on my pants, lands on my shoes. Bandsaw does the same thing. And then no matter how much I wipe my feet off, that stuff it just trickles in and, and comes off my clothes. And do you wear do you wear an apron? I've been trying to wear it more and more. Yes. Yeah. See, I, I wear an apron, but yeah. it's still and it it's, didn't cover it, my it, pants all the way down to my feet though, and I still get some on my pant legs and stuff like that. Yeah, but shake, I shake. but I don't have a saw stop saw, so uh, my dust collection is good. Oh, okay. <laughs> table saw. Yeah, I bet it's not. You just busted your balls. <laughs> I know. I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've, I've got a, a leather shop apron and nothing sticks to it. But does it go down to your shoes? I take my shoes off before I enter the house. Well, I guess what I'm saying is it sticks to the front of my pants sometimes too, yeah. down yeah. on my legs. Yeah. We just need I, a- I, I, t- I tend not to wear pants. I was going to say- it makes sense. We nobody, ever, nobody ever can tell because I'm on camera. You know, I'm usually only I'm only talking hands, <laughs> so they don't know I'm not wearing anything. You just pants. wear a t-shirt but no pants. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, this took a turn. I hope uh, that helps, Antoine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Antoine, I hope that helps. Uh, that's the last question we have. So now we're going to talk about what we have going on in the shop. And let's see, Guy or Hui, who wants to go first? How about you, Guy? What do you got working on in the shop there? Well, since last time we talked, I was on vacation. So I was gone for a week. And I got back last week, Thursday, in the shop. And I've been working on my kitchen island. And actually, I got most of it done already. I got most of it done in like two days. So I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, all I got to do now is build drawers. I've got this weekend to do that. There's seven drawers I have to build, and then I'm pretty much done with it. At work this week, let's see, today's Wednesday, I've built 40. Two, two table bases. I was way and off. One complete table in three days. I'm getting fast, a lot faster than I used to be. That's about it. What about you, Sean? Well, I've had a pretty busy uh, week. Not, I've not been able to get out in the shop. Um, working in, in IT has been, been a pretty uh, busy week. So I'm still working on the hall table. And I hope to have it somewhat complete this weekend, maybe, hopefully, at least glued up. But other than that, I'm going to be playing around with some raised panel bits and railing style bits uh, to make a, a sample door for a video that I'm making. Um, and that is about it. Nothing much. Uh, what about you, Hui? 
Well, I finally took uh, some of the advice that uh, you were talking about, Sean, which is trying to figure out some smaller projects to do. And I actually started working on a little bit of marketry. I did that last week and it came out all right. You know, I still have a lot to work out with that because I'm not very competent with the scroll saw, uh, but also the sand shading is a little bit difficult. Just figuring out what kind of pan is going to work best with sand shading. I was using too thick of a gauge of a pan, too big of a pan. So it was distributing the heat too much. And I just wasn't getting very good shading on the veneers that I was using. Speaking um, of speaking of marquetry and our friend that we mentioned before, Ramon Valdez, did you buy one of his marquetry videos and that he did? Remember when he did that? Yep, yep. I did not. I actually had before he start, had that available. I used. Uh, I bought like way before. I bought David Marks's uh, marquetry double bevel technique marquetry DVD. Well, what does he know about anything? <laughs> and I also have. Uh, I have a video from Paul Schirsch, uh, which is marketarian out in California. So I had those two videos before I had before Ramon had his kit and his videos available. But he, he uses uh, a very similar technique called the be double bevel technique. I'm using what's called uh, the boule technique, which is a packet technique. Uh, very similar in, in a way, but uh, doesn't angle the blade. It, again, uh, it worked out all right. I probably will try the double bevel technique at some point. But right now, actually, I started working on a small cabinet that will have some tomber doors something that I wanted to also experiment with, you know, a smaller project. It's not a big cabinet or anything like that. So hopefully uh, I'll be able to get moving on that pretty soon. I just processed the plywood that I'll need for it. And um, it's going to be veneered. So I got some uh, sapile veneer along with some solid sapile for the legs of the cabinet. But that's what I'm starting on. Hopefully I get working on that pretty soon. So, so that's what I got going on in the shop, guys. Good deal. All right, I think that will do it for this show. Please remember, this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. What about you, Hui? Where can they find you? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are there. Guy, how about you? Uh, guyswoodshop.com. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. See talk ya. to you guys. Bye. Bye-bye.